Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnson, and on today's show, I'll be joined by more international and Irish experts who drive and analyse our world of business and politics. Now, if you've ever woken up on a Monday morning and wished it was Friday evening, you're not alone. I've certainly done it many, many times. Stay tuned because a new book called Surviving the Daily Grind, it's out this week and I'm going to be joined by its author and financial journalist, Philip Coogan. He's worked for The Economist for years and he'll give us all the tips we need and how to get through our working week. And Twitter is now never out of the headlines as a whistleblower has emerged and Elon Musk is still creating impossible levels of drama for the company. Like so many dramas, this one is headed for the courts in October. But the propaganda case is already in full swing. So to try and make sense of it all, I'm going to be joined by the technology correspondent with the Guardian newspaper, Carrie Paul, and she's based in Silicon Valley. And finally, Comeback Kings, Dara Kaleri is back in government, but who else has made it back from the political wilderness in Irish politics? John Downing has covered many resurrections and he'll be joining us to discuss. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. But first up today... Should I stay or should I go? If you say that you are mine... I'll be here till the end of time So you got to let me know Should I stay or should I go? That was, of course, The Clash. Will he stay or will he go? Elon Musk's bad romance has gone from bad to worse with Twitter. The will he, won't he saga that he's involved in with the company that he wanted to buy once continues as his legal team is demanding to hear from more from Twitter's whistleblowing former security chief who could indeed help bolster Mr. Musk's case. To help us make sense of all the corporate drama, I'm joined now by Carrie Paul, who is technology reporter with The Guardian and based in the West Coast of America. So good morning, Carrie, and thank you so much for taking our early call. Yeah, of course. Good morning. So firstly, can you just tell us exactly who this whistleblower is and what exactly he's claiming? Yes, this is uh, Peter Zatko. He was a uh, head of security at Twitter. Um, He left the company and then filed a series of claims to the Federal Trade Commission in the US, which regulates tech companies, saying that Twitter had very poor security practices, and then especially around their spam bots on the platform. Now, why is he important? And how could he affect this case? Yeah, so this um, whistleblower allegations is kind of perfect timing for Elon Musk and also kind of perfect content for Elon Musk, because uh, many of the allegations mentioned in the whistleblower documents are Uh, very related to claims that Musk is trying to use to wriggle out of this deal to purchase Twitter. So a lot of that attempt to wriggle out is hinging on the idea that there are a large number of spam accounts on Twitter. And and that's exactly what this whistleblower was addressing. And do you think that the case which will start on the 17th of October will ultimately be about that, about thrashing out the argument about fake accounts, fake information, or will it become a bigger courtroom drama that is assessment of, of Twitter? in a wider sense? You know, I think it could be a little bit of both. Um, Definitely the primary argument that Musk was using to get out of the deal was the bot issue. Um, 
you know, Zotko had some other allegations that could be concerning, um, including that Twitter did not have a robust security response um, on the app. So, you know, there's there's there are a few claims that I think could come up in the courtroom. Mm. And let's go back to the, the deal and the offer to buy in the first place. Uh, Musk was very enthusiastic about it. He drove the share price by, you know, using his own Twitter handle to kind of talk about the social media company and why he 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 would wanted to make changes, the changes he wanted to make. What went wrong? Like what started to unravel for him? You know, it's difficult to say what was happening behind the scenes to make Musk try to wriggle out of this. Everyone has their theories. Did he ever want to purchase Twitter to begin with? Is this all a massive troll? Um, we're, we're not really sure, um, but, you know, when it comes to the bot issue, that's kind of what he is leaning on as the reason he wanted to back out. You know, he, he's saying that there's a large number of um, illegitimate accounts on the app that affects how much uh, Twitter should be valued at and thus how much he should purchase it for. Yeah, because all of this volatility and uncertainty has affected uh, Twitter itself. Indeed, the company blamed a slump in digital advertising on the uncertainty over this on-off purchase. I was looking at the figures. The company's net loss for the last quarter was $270 million compared with a net income the previous year of $66 million um, at the same time the previous year. It's a big swing. Do you think that... Um, that that there's you know that there's wider concern for the platform is this just a blip that's being caused by this uncertainty or could it have like a kind of downward spiral where it reaches the point of no return over this dispute yeah i mean i think it's a combination of things i think twitter you know wasn't in the best place financially when all of this started to happen um, and now it's in an even more difficult place. I mean, they're suing Elon Musk to force him to finish the deal to purchase a company that he doesn't want to purchase. Like yeah. that does not bode well for the company's <laughs> future because in the best case scenario for Twitter, um, Elon Musk is forced to buy a company that he doesn't want to buy. So mm. I, I'm not sure what their end game is yeah. there in terms of how he'll run the company after he's forced to buy it. Because um, it's sort of yeah, like so. it's it's sort of like they they got engaged, but Musk doesn't want to get married anymore. So is the case, is the court case of trying trying to force them to the altar, or they both just want to call off the engagement? How much would Musk have to pay if he resigned from the deal? So yeah, it's a one billion dollar fee for him to walk away from the deal, which obviously is quite substantial, even for a multi billionaire. Um, so he is trying his best to wriggle his way out legally. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to Carrie Paul of The Guardian about the Twitter whistleblower who may ultimately be helping Elon Musk get out of his Twitter deal. Now, as you alluded to earlier, the company had already been facing some difficulties and indeed they're going through a restructuring uh, of sorts, uh, laying off a third, I think, of it, of its own talent acquisition team earlier this year. Um, do you think that the the um, platform was in demise before all this started? I'm just talking about the actual offering because I've noticed as a user, it's not as really um, interesting as it was before. There's lots of ads creeping in now and it's just not, it just doesn't seem as interactive with, with people you might be interested as before. Yeah, I mean, Twitter, like many tech and social media firms is facing the growing influence of TikTok and other new social media platforms. Um, they're trying their best to compete. 
Um, and most of these platforms, Facebook and Instagram included, are just bleeding millions and millions of young users um, to TikTok. And so they have a lot of competition. Um, Twitter's been struggling for a couple of years now in terms of retaining users, especially young users. So it, I, I'm not sure it was in the best place to begin with. And, and this drama is not going to help. And where, what's the position the company is taking as they wait for this court case? What are they saying about the emergence of the, the whistleblower? Yeah, so Twitter did have some strongly worded responses to the whistleblower. They are saying it is a, you know, individual disgruntled employee. It's not indicative of larger issues. Um, They have said as much in statements um, and in filings. Um, So, yeah, they're pretty adamant that this is not a real issue and that it's, it's kind of a one person's word against them situation. And has there been any kickback from the other uh, issues that the whistleblower has raised, like the security of data? Yeah, I mean, I think if the allegations that the whistleblower raised are true, that Twitter doesn't have a proper response in place for uh, security issues, that it's running outdated data and outdated software, then that is a bit concerning. I think the debate is like how accurate those claims are and... Um, I guess the FTC will have to investigate that. Yeah, you've probably been looking at Elon Musk for for many years and the other businesses that he's made really successful. Uh, What do you think his motivations are in this? Do you think he actually wants to to ultimately buy Twitter? My personal view as someone who's covered Elon Musk for years is that he is simply a troll and an agent of chaos and he does crazy these stunts for attention and he doesn't really care if it costs people billions of dollars because he's a multi-billionaire and so and i really sometimes wonder if he does these things for fun i'm not sure what his motivations are it's really like as a journalist covering it always a wild ride yeah he's had a big big effect on twitter have has this saga had an effect on him are there any of his other business like tesla suffering because of it I mean, we haven't had an earnings report recently to test this out, but I don't think the other companies are necessarily being directly impacted, but they could in the long term. For example, you know, the FTC or the SEC could step in and say, um, we don't think this person is fit to run these major companies anymore because of his erratic behavior. Like they could have him step down, which would, I think, be maybe the only thing that could stop Elon Musk because for the richest man in the world, fines don't mean very much. I think if he got removed from the head of his companies um, or demoted or impacted in some way, um, yeah, that could that could have an impact on him. Certainly could. Um, somebody suggested to me the other day that the demise of Twitter actually started when Trump was banned from the platform, that they were in trouble before uh, Trump had started to run for the presidency and that, in fact, he had brought his own dynamic to the platform. What do you think of that? And, and how is his own social media platform, Truth Social, doing at the moment? Um, yeah, it's difficult to say. I mean, I think definitely Trump created a lot of engagement on different platforms. Um, a lot of that engagement was misinformation and, and you know, negative impacts on society at large. So I think these companies have to make those judgments and make those changes and decide, you know, what um, the right choice is. Truth Social, as far as I know, does not seem to have a critical mass of people getting off the ground yet. It's definitely being used... So I guess we'll still have to see how how that goes. Okay. well, as you say in your piece, uh, the uh, ongoing saga between Twitter and Elon Musk almost seems like a script from the movie. So we'll have to continue to watch this space. But for now, that's Carrie Paul of The Guardian. Carrie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you.
This is Mandy Johnston with your News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up next, living to work or working to live. How to survive the daily grind. You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. Changed many things really. In a in a global sense, streamlining the whole ongoing enterprise of it. I'm so, sorry, David, that sounds on. like management speak to me and I know you hate that. Yeah, I do. So Well, can you give me let's say five practical changes that you've actually made? Five specific changes. Hmm. I'll give you three and then another two if you need them. Okay. Efficiency, turnover. Profitability. I'm sorry, David, that still sounds like management speak. No, because... You hate yep. that. There is the emotion as good in business syndrome, sure, notwithstanding the cruel-to-be-kind scenario. I'm sorry, David, so, you've lost me. Well, you're not looking at that whole pie, Jenny. Word of hog is one big pie. And if they've let me in charge of that one big pie, I'll be in charge of the, the pie and the people of the fruit. And I'm I don't have time for the pie, pie thing, thing. David. You don't want it, no. And now that, of course, was David Brent striking horror and fear into managers all over Ireland. Now, my next guest spent 20 years writing for The Economist, where he penned a column, Bartleby, which looks at the world of work and management. Philip Coggan has taken these experiences as a starting point for his new book, Surviving the Daily Grind. And it takes a sideways look at the current management theories and work practices that we all have to live with day in, day out. Philip, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. Thank you very much for having me on, Mandy. Now, Philip, this book is dedicated to all of the long-suffering office workers of the world, of which I am one, and it does display a real sympathy for those of us who have to endure tedious meetings, mindless jargons and the endless bureaucracy. Um, We haven't always worked in big groups, big offices like this. Could you just give us a quick history lesson in how we came to work the way that we do now? Yes, Mandy. So if you think back 200 years, most people didn't commute, didn't go into a central place of work. They worked on their farm or they worked in a little blacksmith shop, say, um, uh, and they worked with a very small group of people. Then we had factories and suddenly people uh, had to come in and work um, to meet the needs of the factory owner. There'd be a clock, you know, which would time them. And then after that, once the industrial group started to get organized, we had the office. And people uh, who managed offices wanted everybody to come at the same time so they could be watched carefully and they would pass around bits of paper. Uh, And so we all got used to this idea of the nine to five, five days a week. We made everybody come in at the same time so the commuting was as stressful as possible. Uh, And we've had that system for the last couple of hundred years and no longer is it necessary. And I think the pandemic, which had obviously dreadful consequences in many ways, started to make us realise that it wasn't necessary anymore. Yeah, and you make the point that the pandemic accelerated all the things that probably would have happened with technology anyway. I was very interested, uh, you know, when, when you raised the point about the physical location of people and why we had to be physically near each other because of paper, of course, but we we actually don't need to do any of that anymore. And so the world of work has absolutely changed. But it was all supposed to be sorted out by now anyway, according to Maynard Keynes, who said that by now we should have all be just working about three and a half days per week. How's that working out for everyone? Yeah, it's not working out very well at all, is it? No. And we seem to be working harder and harder as time has come on. And, and people in offices... That's one of the another downside of the pandemic that some people ended up working longer hours working at home than they did 
in the office because mm. they felt guilty and they worked at the weekends or in evenings. Um, but I think the reason for that is that um, we've long since met or our basic our basic needs, which is what Keynes was talking about. But now we're very interested in what they call positional goods. We want, you know, the nicest house in the nicest area. We want the best cars. We want to go on holiday to a nice place. Um, and to do that, we have to work hard to earn the money to compete everybody else, mm. to outcompete everybody else. Uh, and that's the sort of um, hedonic treadmill, as they call it, that we got stuck on. Um, we're all desperately competing to enjoy ourselves, and that costs more and more as time goes on. Yeah, so we've changed the boundaries, really, if you like, and that's why we have to work more than uh, you might have expected if we just stuck to what we need. Um, yeah, if you think 30 years ago, who would call you at 10 o'clock in the evening? Mm. Probably be your mum, right? Mm. But now it's as likely to be your boss as your mum, and that's rather disturbing. <laughs> Now, um, meetings, we can't talk about any working day or any working environment, no matter whether you're in an office or not. They're, they're, they've kind of turned into the bane of our lives, haven't they? Even even more so since Zoom. Can you just tell us about some of the common mistakes that we make at meetings and how we can do things better? Yeah, I've come up with Bartleby's Law, which is that 80% of the time of 80% of the people in meetings is wasted. And the common mistakes we make is that we have too many people attend meetings, right? People attend because they don't want to miss out on the meeting or the manager insists on them attending the meeting, even though it's useless. And Jeff Bezos, who um, founded Amazon, has a good rule, which is that uh, you have no meeting where it couldn't be fed by two pizzas, right? So, you know, we have meetings of 50, 60 people. This is entirely pointless. The second, meeting, the second problem is they go on far too long, um, you know, two, three hours, some meeting. And then that, you know, People are just get bored and unproductive. And a third problem, which is a great guy called C. Northcote Parkinson, came up with this rule back 50, 60 years ago, which is the law of triviality, which is you spend too much time on the unimportant bits of the meeting, you know, uh, where should the next meeting be held, when should it be held, and not enough on the important issues. Uh, and so the result of this is this long session of tedium. So how can we make it better? Mm have fewer meetings, have fewer people attend them, have a rigid uh, time structure and have an, a proper agenda. So another Jeff Bezos tip is that he has a, a memorandum which states the issues that are going to be discussed. Um, bef uh, he hands that out at the start of the meeting and then insists that everybody reads it before they actually discuss it. And the consequence of that is you don't waste time on raising issues which have already been raised in the memo. You concentrate on the key things that you need to decide. It certainly focuses attention. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Philip Coggan about his new book, Surviving the Daily Grind. Now, you can have no discussion about meetings or office environments without talking about jargon and the entire languages that are now designed, in my view, to keep other people out. You see it evidenced in the EU, in the university sector um, and the horrible development of phrases that we all inadvertently pick up like future forward, circle back. How can we though, uh, Philip, as individuals make a difference? Is there any way that we can personally start swimming against the kind of, you know, drowning in that sea of jargon? Well, I think we can all express ourselves clearly and avoid those things. Circling back essentially means I am, I've already bothered you in the past. I'm going to bother you again, even <laughs> though you haven't responded, right? So there's loads of these phrases. Use, George Orwell had laws about writing and they apply to speaking too. You know, use common words, keep your sentences short, that sort of thing. And managers, of course, use this jargon because as you say, it's designed partly to exclude 
people. I am a manager. I can use this sophisticated language and you don't understand. So therefore, I am entitled to earn more money than you. But I think my law about jargon is that jargon abhors a vacuum. So usually when a manager has nothing to say but needs to send a memo, they fill up the memo with jargon to make it longer and make it seem more important. Um, but if the if they have nothing to say, then they shouldn't send a memo in the first place. And if they have something to say, express it in clear language, avoid all this circumlocution so that we know at the end of it what message the manager is trying to impart. The same rule that applies to meetings. Keep the memo short, keep the meeting short and make them clear and know what you're trying to say. The thing I really liked about the book is it will give employees a good understanding of managers and uh, the things that they should be looking out for as well as the other way around. But that notion of kind of understanding the manager and you mentioned uh, Jeff Bezos there, um, we're kind of living in this era of a cult of this chief executive. Um, But it's not really new. Uh, There's lots of stories in there about people like Robert Maxwell. So that idea of the cult status of the CEO is, is not really a new phenomena, is it? No, it's not. But the, what is new is that they get paid an awful lot more than they used to, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the ratio of the pay of the CEO to the average worker has gone up exponentially. And it's because they get you know, profiled in business magazines and they get these share options. But it's ridiculous to think that the success of any business is down to one person. Occasionally, you get a Steve Jobs who, uh, you know, turns a business around. But even he depended on the the Jonathan Ives, the designer, and loads of people who carried out his wishes. All businesses in the modern era are collaborative processes. And it's the cult of the the CEO is a bit like the cult of the football manager. You could you could take a brilliant manager, but if they have very poor players in the team, they're going to lose a lot of games. Mm. And similarly, you know, not a very good football manager, and, and, and they're in charge of Manchester City, they'll still probably do pretty well. Um, and we've started to sort of idolise these people and write, you know, profiles of them. And, and there's one I think about Tim Cook of Apple. You know, he he starts emailing people at four a.m. in the morning, and that's supposed to be virtuous. Mm. But what about the poor schmuck who works for him, who wakes up at six o'clock and finds seven emails from Tim Cook and can't even enjoy his breakfast because he's got to respond to them all? Yeah. You know, it's not it's no virtue in tyrannizing your employees or making their life a misery. No. Work success in work is about collaboration and cooperation between all the teams, not just the one person. So what are what are the things that make a good manager? Can you give us a couple of tips for managers who are listening in? Yes, definitely. I think um, one lesson that's been brought home to me researching the book was that managers should be more like a coach than a, a sergeant major, than mm. a, you know, a commanding officer. You're really looking to bring out the best of your team. Modern uh, companies are not like the old-fashioned factories, you know, where people just had to pull a lever and 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 do a, a production line. It's a, they need to be creative. They need to come up with their own solutions. So, as a coach, as a manager, you should listen to what your employees are saying. You should look to see where they can improve and help them improve. And if you can do that, if you do more listening than talking, uh, then you will find out what makes your employees tick, what makes your business tick, and then you can improve them. So. You know, good football managers, Gareth Southgate or, you know, not the shouty type of manager, but someone who is aware of his players because he's um, followed them up through the ranks and can encourage them and direct them uh, rather than ordering them. Mm. And employees are a bit more powerful now post-pandemic, the war for talent. Uh, I think they've they've become a bit more assertive in, in, in dictating their own agenda, haven't they? 
Yes, definitely. Um, you see in certain sectors, you know, where people didn't get treated very well, like uh, um, hospitality, and they've started to move to uh, other companies. Uh, and that's a, a, it's a great thing, because I think what the pandemic brought home was um, people have been working, you know, in commuting and working in sort of not very uh, good places. And suddenly they spend lots of time at home and decided, I'm going to you mm. know, change my life priorities and look for a, a better place to work. So it's going to make it all the more competitive. Um, to attract people. And most um, pe people leave bad managers, they don't leave um, bad jobs. It's because your manager is a pain in the neck, mm. uh, that you come home miserable. It's not necessarily because the company is bad. And so companies at the top, people at the top of companies should also be aware that junior managers who are you know, too much of a martinet are probably ruining their, bus ruining their business, not encouraging them. Now, you make a very interesting observation that we're unlikely to make lifelong connections on Zoom. Do you think that the grind you refer to in the title of the book has become worse since the pandemic? I think there are, there are some things that have got worse and some things that have got better. I think suddenly the realisation you don't have to go into work every day. You know, maybe you go in two days a week and you still meet your your colleagues and still have you know the meetings that are necessary. That's fine. The worst thing is this. Zoom fatigue, as it's called, mm. you know, people going from one meeting to another with not a not a break. And there's something very tiring about being on video screen. And that that's a big brother feeling that, you know, if you yawn or roll your eyes, if you're in a big meeting, you can get away with that right face to face. But if you're on Zoom and your picture's there, somebody's going to notice. So um, I think we need to, again, shorten Zoom meetings as much as we need to shorten general meetings and give people the time to get on with what they're actually doing. If they spend all their time in meetings, they're not really going to get much done. Hmm. And back to my law about 80% of the time of 80% of the pe uh, uh, people in meetings is wasted. <laughs> so uh, we need to, re if we've remade work to have people um, working at home more, we need to rethink how they communicate, do it less on Zoom and more on the phone, shorter calls, um, short, shorter electronic res uh, responses. Yeah, I think that if technology, emails and the internet was already blurring boundaries between work and home life, uh, COVID-19 just exacerbated that. Now, physically, the boundary between work and home becomes quite difficult for people to differentiate between. So, so I think that's a big legacy. Um, but there's a few books, Philip, that you reference uh, uh, in the book that people should read. What are the other classics um, uh, for people to, to look for when they're seeking out a book about uh, management or uh, navigating the workplace to thrive, not just survive? Well, the, the two, the classic ones are um, the How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie and The Power of uh, Positive Thinking. Um, and these are, you know, they're very sensible um, suggestions about uh, though some of them have some tiresome implications. So one of the suggestions in uh, those books is that you address people by their first names, which is why all Americans you know, in business are always saying, well, Mandy, yes, Mandy, no, Mandy, you're a very good point, Mandy, um, to the point that drives you up the wall. Yeah. So, um, but a lot of being, you know, of that is about being clear about your goals, so being, are those treating other people as you would... Uh, uh, so so are those yep. lessons, they, have they dated or are they still consistent to those basic rules endure? I think those basic rules do endure, um, but you need more. So there are other companies that have um, set up rules um, which uh, are more apposite. So I mentioned the Jeff Bezos example about the length of meetings and uh, 
the way that meetings should be organised. And I think you should look more to the uh, the tech sector for the way they've tried to innovate, um, the way that companies are organised, less of a rigid hierarchy, more bringing people from different departments to try and collaborate with each other. It's called agile management. It's a terrible jargon term, <laughs> but the sense in it that... Um, you should not always be in your rigid silos. You know, somebody's in marketing, somebody's in um, sales, somebody's in production. You should always try to bring people from different departments together. And that is where going into the office occasionally mixing people up um, does help and you can't spend all your time at home. Okay, well, finally, Phil, can you just leave us with a few basic tips? Is there a golden rule for us to to hang on to to survive uh, the workplace? There's a golden rule, which I hope is not, too rude for radio is don't be an asshole. Um, behave as you would like to, to be uh, other people to behave towards you. Treat people with respect. Uh, listen to them. Uh, don't talk over them. Don't override them. If you do that as a manager, your employees will respect you more. If you do it as an employee, people will cooperate with you more. Don't go into business and think, you know, you're this um, great go-ahead tyrant who can order people about and rule the world in five minutes. Um, go into business and think about co- cooperating with your colleagues because that's how the modern economy works. It's about cooperation. Well, there's lots of useful and interesting points that I'll certainly be putting into practice next week. The book is called Surviving the Daily Grind. That's Philip Coggan. Thank you very much, Philip, for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me, Mandy. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up after the break, some of the greatest Irish political comebacks of all time. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. I wish to talk to you this evening about the state of the nation's affairs. And the picture I have to paint is not, unfortunately, a very cheerful one. The figures which are just now becoming available to us show one thing very clearly. As a community, we are living a way beyond our means. That was, of course, Charlie Hawhey, the famed comeback king. Now, this week, Dara Kaleri was brought back in from the cold and was appointed a minister once more, having previously resigned following Golfgate. So it got us thinking about political comebacks. Is it easy to make your way back into power if you've had a fall from grace? Political commentator and journalist with the Irish Independent, John Downing, has witnessed and indeed reported on many a political comeback. And he joins me now. John, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Mandy. Nadara Kaleri is back in from the cold, as I said there. I was trying to kind of assess the political uh, temperature of his return. He's well got around the political system. How do you think his return was greeted in political circles? There was a great deal of goodwill for him. Goodwill, like gratitude in politics, can be very scarce. Um, But I think there was... uh, and a, a recognition across many parties that he'd had a very difficult time and that there was a certain unfairness attaching to mm. his fall from grace in August 2020. The thing that did for him was he attended a golf dinner at the height of the uh, COVID-19 epidemic. There was a great deal of national upset and worry about the whole thing. He felt uh, he had to resign. Subsequent investigations and court actions showed the organisers did not uh, did did no wrong in relation to that event. So it was kind of hard lines. It also came on the back of a very difficult 2020 for him mm. as deputy 
leader of Fianna Fáil in a very lacklustre election campaign in February 2020, he had to take his share of the blame. Um, some felt it was it was harsh. In fact, there was a great fury in Mayo and west of the Shannon that he did not make uh, Michal Martin's first team at the uh, at the first set of appointments, but he did get back in there under the wire, so to speak, when Barry Cowan. Uh, was sacked following a row with, with the party leadership, so he was only in. He was only really about to get his legs under him. A matter of twenty days or something like that, when mm. he was forced to resign. So, I, all things considered, I think um, he's seen as an honest and an honourable de- dealer and a competent person. So, I, I think it was reasonably well received. Yeah, he he probably wasn't actually the biggest casualty of that Golfgate saga. Um, lots of others were set, sent to the political and indeed the media wilderness. So do you think there could be any other political resurrections, Phil Hogan, maybe, perhaps? Um, it's hard to see Phil Hogan. Uh, to my personal judgment, and I, I speak as somebody who had worked in uh, Brussels for 10 years, and I've worked in Leinster House for well over 20 years on both sides of the fence, I felt it was very, very harsh judgment and uh, a very difficult situation for Phil Hogan to lose uh, being Ireland's commissioner and being forced to resign. It's very hard to see a political resurrection for Phil Hogan in Brussels or perhaps even, or even nationally at this point. Mm, it was a big loss for Ireland though to, to lose that, that portfolio. Is, I mean, There is no doubt he was a big loss. Just uh, his, his presence and his influence were huge. Now, Ireland is very different to our nearest neighbours uh, in the UK when, when we look at what's possible in terms of political comebacks. Uh, we see M- M- Mandelson, Michael Gove, even talk of Boris coming back before Liz Truss is in. We're not terribly forgiving, though, uh, of, of politicians who get on the wrong side of it here in Ireland. Who for you are the, the biggest figures who, who have actually made a successful political comeback in Ireland? Well, in my lifetime, the two that completely stand out are Charles J. Hawhey, who's an extraordinary uh, story, uh, having been in court for uh, charged with illegal importation of arms in 1970, albeit being acquitted by that court. But uh, he spent basically five, six years in the outer wilderness, grudgingly brought back, I think around 1975, to uh, Fianna Fáil's front bench in opposition by Jack Lynch, and eventually appointed health minister after the landslide in June 1997. Uh, And of course, coming on to be Taoiseach, Mm. leading a backbench revolt in November 1979 and becoming Taoiseach. So inside nine years, he went from being a a very excluded backbench uh, Fianna Foil TD to being party leader and Taoiseach. Yeah, he is extraordinary. Uh, he went from literally from being at the cabinet table to the dock. Uh, there's no conversation about political comebacks in Ireland that can be had without talking about him. So, yeah, what he's, is, he's the daddy of the all. Really. What is, um, in your view, the thing that made him so successful at coming back time and time again? I think it was the sheer steel and persistence that he showed. I, I think uh, it was also uh, clever. I, I, I have uh, this phrase. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of, with, with apologies to James Joyce, he, he summed up his 
literary career as silence, exile, cunning. I would adapt that to say um, a bit uh, silence uh, and cunning in exile. He kept the head down very quietly, uh, was available, travelled the country. I mean, it's legion. He frequently drove he and his his uh, sparring partner, PJ Mara, frequently drove all night back from the most far-flung uh, part of the country, having attended a Fianna Foyle social, delivered uh, a fiery speech and met everyone and anyone who wanted to talk to him. He did that for seven, eight, nine years. It was the most extraordinary thing. Meanwhile, he stayed quiet. He, another one who was excluded at the same time, Neil Blaney, did quite the opposite, uh, was uh, was repeatedly sparring and sniping at the Fianna Foyle leadership. He never made it back to the centre. Charlie Hawhey avoided all that and did little by little steal his way back towards the centre. And many of us and lots of our listeners will know about what happened to him after he left politics uh, and the tribunals and everything that emerged from that. But what did for him in the end politically? How did he actually lose his leadership in the end? Uh, well, he lost his lead- his actual leadership. He lost it in, in February 1992 to, um, to Albert Reynolds. I think it was a bit... Uh, there, there was he was somebody who saw off four or five heaves. Mm. There was a certain uh, fatigue in fighting them all the time. But the specific circumstances were very hard to deal with. Um, it was a, a revelation by a former uh, colleague of his, Sean Doherty, about who knew what and when, which completely contradicted uh, Charlie Hawhey's version of events around a very fraught period in the early 80s and made his position completely untenable. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to John Downing, journalist with the Irish Independent and political commentator. Now, John, who else from the other side of the fence and Fine Gael maybe, who's the big political comeback well, person there? Well, it'd be hard to pass Michael Noonan mm. of, of Limerick in that regard. Michael Noonan um, was a very, very experienced politician in several uh, Fine Gael Labour coalition cabinets, uh, often seen as a putative leader of Fine Gael and therefore a Taoiseach. And he finally got the leadership of, of Fine Gael in quite disputed circumstances in early 2001, in very fraught circumstances. A big feud internally at the time. Yes, yeah, a very, a very acrimonious handover of power. But he went on, I mean, some of the reasons how he could have thought in retrospect that we, we knew the outer, at that point, we knew he had about a year and a half at kindest estimate, less in fact, to rally the troops, rally a very divided and beleaguered Fine Gael and fight an election at a time uh, when the people were absolutely at their, their happiest. Mm. We had peace in Northern Ireland. We had uh, peace, industrial peace via, via large scale labour agreements. Uh, the economy was utterly booming to a point that nobody had ever dreamed of. There was near enough full employment. Uh, people were getting tax rebates while the Fianna Foyle uh, led government was also in a position to give tax cuts and increase social spending. Uh, there was no problem that they couldn't uh, throw additional money at. Mm. So amid all of that, 
Michael Noonan brings Fine Gael out, trying to fight a kind of nebulous uh, battle of um, quality of life, uh, traffic choked, uh, poor, bad value for money, rip off Republic, that sort of uh, line of country. And, of course, uh, always arguing that the health services for a rich country remained very poor. Mm. All of that. People had none of it. No. They didn't. They didn't give him a scintilla of notice. And then he was. And, and then he resigned, John. But he he came back again um, uh, as minister for finance. Uh, what yeah. what effect did that have on his legacy? Well, it, it had everything to do with his legacy because he he resigned uh, in uh, May two uh, thousand and two after Fine Gael had had been led to their worst election since 1947. Mm. Uh, they had lost, they were reduced to 31 TDs. They had three in Dublin. And he came back slowly as firstly uh, chairman of the Public Accounts Committee. Later, what really happened was he picked, uh, he st- stood well back from a leadership heave in uh, against Enda Kenny in uh, June 2010. The net result of that was two other potential uh, finance ministers uh, destroyed their own prospects. He came in as the uh, sort of avuncular father figure to a country that was uh, under supervision from the Troika, EU, ECB, IMF, we're calling the shots, writing government policy. Uh, Michael Noonan managed through all of that with a, a great deal of diplomacy, uh, got Ireland, Ireland emerged from that uh, the Troika bailout, began to get its legs under it. He began to talk about uh, things really having turned the corner uh, with the figures and the, the economic conditions to, to prove that assertion. And uh, in, in that way, he um, kind of stole a certain uh, national affection mm. again. Yeah. And got, got really got a second chance at politics, which is very, very rare, especially in this country. And I think he will be history will uh, record Michael Noonan as the one who got us through the darkest days. And John, in your view, is there anybody who hasn't made a political comeback that is a bit of a loss to Ireland? Somebody who could have done more, maybe they lost their seat, maybe they went out in in uh, a controversy, but anybody who you feel just, you know, didn't come back, but maybe should have? Well, I do feel that, and I'm going to light up your, your Twitter machine for you this Sunday morning, Mandy, and, and probably all your, your other social. My own very strong personal conviction well, we mentioned it earlier, the loss of Phil Hogan from the EU Commission uh, table. His replacement is a very able and, in her way, very influential person. But she can't pack the punch that Phil Hogan does because he was the Agriculture Commissioner in charge of 40% of the budget for five years. He moves to a higher plane in charge of... Uh, international trade in that post he's doing things that everybody every nationality every other national commissioner at that at the the table of the policy guiding commission they all need something from him they always want something from him he has always been aware he had always been aware of uh, ireland's particular needs at eu level as did many other irish commissioners all things being equal 
they can influence things and stroke things for their for their home foreign nation. Mm. That was a huge loss to Ireland. And sorry, just one final question on that one then. Do you think, John, given everything that was to play for with us in the context of Brexit in Europe, that the government at the time should have done more? Because it was difficult, wasn't it, the climate that we were in? But do you think that Leo Varadkar, Martin, should have done more? They should have done far more. Yeah, I mean, far from far from protecting him, they did quite the opposite. They did for him. I mean, once your home country uh, kind of withdraws confidence in you, then your position in Brussels is untenable. And that, in practice, is what they did mm. in in August uh, um, 2020. Well, on that note, we leave it there. That's John Downing, uh, campaign manager for Bring Back Phil and journalist with the Irish Independent. John, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for tuning in today. That's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. My thanks to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Jojo Cardoso on sound. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email takingstock at newstalk.com. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof. And then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. They'll be reviewing all your Sunday newspapers and much more. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.